Hi guys, it's date night. Come on, there's got to be more people in here than that that's excited. I know kids are amazing, they're a big part of our life, but there's nothing sweeter than getting a break for them, right? And we get this for free. All right. Either way, if you enjoy it as much as I do or not, make sure you thank those people that have been doing it for us for years and years and years. Awesome. If you don't know me, my name's Evan. I'm the pastor down here. We've been walking through a series called The Blessed Life for the last five, six weeks. We're going to be doing it until September. The series is basically a verse-by-verse walkthrough of the Sermon on the Mount. For some people, that's a little bit arduous, a little bit long, but my hope is that you will see when you take the time, when you invest the time into just in studying the Bible in that way, you get so much more out of it. Because this is the living Word of God given to us by our Creator, and it can transform every aspect of our lives if we're willing to take the time to study, to think, to meditate. So we're going to do it collectively. And out of this, I hope you then take the time to do it on your own. All right. So, so far in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, that's what they call it, he has been countercultural. He has been telling his disciples, that's defined as those who have chosen to pull away from the crowds so that way they can listen and apply his teachings. He's been telling the disciples that the poor in spirit, those who are lowly or destitute, they will be blessed. That those who mourn or deeply grieve, they will be blessed. That those who are meek or gentle or mild, they will be blessed. He has been stating that the people who are in a weaker state or position in life will be considered fortunate, even envied. This was and still is countercultural. It makes little to no sense to us why people that we see as weak or broken should be considered enviable. But as we've studied over the past few weeks, the reasons why these types of people are blessed is because who they have come to. The blessing or fortunate position and all the benefits that it brings comes from being with Jesus. It doesn't matter how broken or how messed up you feel in this life. Jesus continues to bring blessings into our lives. And these blessings aren't smaller and significant. The last three that we've looked at Belonging to the creator of everything's kingdom. Being deeply comforted in the midst of severe hardship. And being given everything in the world that one needs. These are things that everyone wishes they could have. When we recognize, when people recognize their own brokenness and their need for someone far greater than themselves to bring them out and to give them what they truly need, and then they come to the God of the Bible then they are given what they truly need. The next beatitude, the one that we're going to be looking at tonight, it's a little bit different in my opinion. For me, it makes far more sense logically. It comes into my realm of reason. But it still falls into the same concept of the others. Ones who follow Jesus will be blessed, fortunate, or enviable. It's simple. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. 
Read it one more time. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Let's break this down. So the idea of hunger and thirst. We all understand what it means to be hungry and thirsty. It is a sign that some of our most basic needs have not been met. When one is truly hungry or thirsty, they can do very little to think about anything except food or water. Anybody feeling that right now? One's desire to eat or drink end up being their top priority. The exact same principle applies when we use it as a metaphor. When a person, when a person hungers or thirsts for anything, it means that they strongly desire it, that it will be at the forefront of their mind. Jesus states that his disciples should have this approach to righteousness. Now, righteousness in the Greek has two different definitions that can apply in this spot. The first one, to be put right with or to be in a right relationship with. Over and over throughout the Bible, we see, the God, we see God's intention with his creation is to put them right, to bring them back into a right relationship with their creator. Once sin or rebellion against God entered the scene, the perfect creator was separated from his imperfect creation. But from Genesis 3 on, God carries out his plan to reconcile or to restore his relationship with humanity to its rightful place. Let me tell you, show you two verses that speak highly of this. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to, be, him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One more, Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that way we might receive adoption as children, our rightful spot. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child, position of righteousness. And if a child, then also an heir through God. In both of these verses, we see that God sends Jesus to do what we could never do. Make ourselves righteous or put ourselves back into a right relationship with a perfect God as his sons and daughters. It could and can only be done through the power of, and grace of God himself. This is what anyone, regardless of who they are or what they have done, good or bad, can receive when they come to Jesus. Deeply desire to be saved from the brokenness of the world. And this is an incredible blessing. Really, I believe this is the biggest blessing that anybody can ever experience. But based on the context of Jesus' sermon and the rest of the verse, I think the second definition of righteousness more aptly applies. Now, I know I'm getting heavy with theology, I hope this is distracting you a little bit. It will come into play. Now, the second definition of righteousness means conforming to a standard or a norm, specifically God's. 
conforming to a standard or a norm, specifically God's. Another defines it as morally upright or virtuous behavior and character. In this way, through this definition, righteousness means that one lives their life in the way that God desires them to live, full of good virtue. Then Jesus gives us the specific ways in which we'd be blessed. If you wouldn't mind putting it back up. He says that, for they will be satisfied. I think he's continuing on with his hunger and thirst metaphor. He promises that we'll be satisfied, that we will eat our fill and no longer be longing for our most basic needs to be met. In the Greek, satisfied can also be defined as content. Let's lay this all out. Jesus, is, Jesus promises that if we deeply desire to live life in line with God's standards, the way that he has created mankind to live and function, then we will be content. Doesn't that sound wonderful? To be content, pleased, genuinely happy, satisfied, those are all in the definition of content. To no longer feel that urge to chase down that elusive feeling that we remember having when we were young. You remember that? When you didn't have to think about your bank account, you didn't have to think about if you were going to have enough food. You didn't have to think about what your boss thought of you. You simply were engaged in the moment and you went to bed and you slept like a baby. Don't you guys want that? I believe that contentment is one of the most longed for yet missed out feeling on feelings in this life. According to the Merriam-Webster, it's a dictionary, content is defined as feeling or showing satisfaction with one's possessions, one's status, and one's situation. Satisfied with one's possessions, status, and situation. So I used to be a teacher in middle school, and object lessons used to always catch those teenagers, 12, 13-year-old kids' eyes. And I know we like to pretend that we have far more of a longer extension span than those kids, but come on. So let's pretend this is content. This is being fully satisfied with your possessions, with your status, and with your current situation. How many of you would say you feel this way now? Fully satisfied with everything you own your relationships with others, and your relationship with the world as a whole, your status, the way they see you. Fully content with the current situation that you happen to be in, financially, your health, the weather. Were you content yesterday? You think you'll be content tomorrow? A majority of humans spend their entire lives pursuing this state of being, but I believe very few find it. We think that we can achieve a contentment through money, through power, through the approval of others, through good health, through possessions, through relationships. Right? All these things are good. But what we do is we look at those things as if they are what can bring us that contentment that we always desire. We assume if we continue to pour enough of our time, 
our effort, our talents into whatever we think will satisfy us, then we assume that one day we will find utter contentment. But there are endless stories of the rich, the popular, and the powerful lacking contentment. Let me kind of explain this a little bit more. Now, each of these blocks represents whatever. It could be pleasure, it could be leisure, it could be money, it could be possessions, those things that are good in our lives, the things that God has given us. Each, but these blocks represent the amount of importance that we place upon those things. When we look to money, when we look to pleasure, when we look to approval of others, we start to see it as more and more important. And as we do this, these other things, like family, health, they, became, they take the back seat. They're no longer a major focus of ours. And when we continue to focus on those things, we start to feel less and less content. Even though it becomes obvious from the outside, when we're in the midst of it, we don't recognize that we are discontent, continually seeking more and more of whatever that thing is. And eventually, it can take years, decades, we get to the end of it and we recognize that there is no contentment whatsoever to be found in whatever we are pursuing. You know, for me, I spent a good 12, 13 years partying. And I thought for sure that it would be the thing that would bring me what I truly wanted in this life. At the end of it, I recognized, man, I had just wasted 13 years of my life where there's all these other things I could have been focusing on. But I had put my sole focus on that one thing. This is an experience that every person will go through countless times in their lives. Contentment tends to always remain just out of reach. But in a single statement, Jesus tells us how we can find it. If we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now remember, righteousness is defined as conforming to God's standards. Living life the way that God designed mankind to live. Jesus states that when we deeply desire to live in the way that we were made to, then we will experience what we all long to experience. For me, this is very logical. When we want something to do what it was designed to do, then we need to follow the instruction of its creator, right? When we have a device or a program and we want it to do certain things and we just try to make it operate off of our own intuition, our own logic, very rarely does it do what we want it to do. But if we would adhere to the instructions given by the one who made it, then it would work perfectly as it's designed to. In order to find the contentment that we all desire, we have to follow the wisdom of the one who made us. We have to be willing to step outside our preconceptions and the logic that we and our culture naturally gravitate towards and turn to the one that intimately knows us and every moment of our lives long before they happened. What is incredible is that on average, God gave us 1,200 pages of instruction on how to best live our lives. From cover to cover, the Bible is a story of God's interaction with mankind, much of which gives wisdom on how best to live. The Sermon on the Mount, for example, is packed full of God's standards of what is righteous and how to tangibly live this out. 
If one was to base their life off the Sermon on the Mount, their ways of thinking and acting, I promise you that they would experience more contentment. They'd have more of a positive focus, a healthy focus on what these various things that we all love, that we all gravitate towards, should be in their lives. Their views on money, pleasure, relationships, success, and leisure would more closely conform to where they should be. But unfortunately, this contentment that comes from doing that wouldn't be permanent and potentially not genuine. There are at least three problems with this approach, seeing the Bible as a list of rules by which one should live their lives. The first, it is utterly impossible to do. We were created to live a task, excuse me, created to live life with a perfect and untarnished love for God and for others. I don't care who you are, you are unable to do that. If you don't believe me, read through the rest of chapter 5 in Matthew. You were created to never be angry, to never look at another person sexually other than your spouse. You were created to always be honest to always allow those who take advantage of you to continue to do so and to love those that you logically should hate. Our mind and our emotions naturally gravitate towards selfishness. No matter how hard we try to live selflessly, inevitably we will get angry. We will lust. We will make promises we can't keep. We will retaliate and we will hate those that we should logically hate, which brings us out of contentment. The second problem with a person attempting to live by the Bible's standards on their own is that it can very easily become a source of pride. It's often defined as legalism. When one thinks that he is able to live up to the standards, he begins to take pride in himself and judge those who fall short. This way of thinking so quickly puts us, a person in direct control of their life and in the lives of others, which as we already saw, leads to false perceptions of what it takes to be content, which is going to lead to more and more discontentment. The last problem to this approach is that it cannot guard you from the consequences of circumstance. We live in a broken world. Nothing can change that. If anything, this approach sets you up for greater disappointment. We believe that because we are doing everything that we should do, therefore, life should always be good. And then out of nowhere, a circumstance comes and utterly changes everything. Could be relationship, could be financial, it could be health. You can go on and on about all the things that are just an atomic bomb that drops into a perfect life. And from that, we react with anger, frustration, disappointment utter discontentment. So, if trying to live up to God's standards is not the solution, why did Jesus say it was? Let's go back to that verse. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What did he say? Blessed are those that do it. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst, that deeply desire to do it. Now, I know this may seem like an unnoticeable difference, but it is paramount. 
A person's actions can be easily manufactured regardless of their motivation. But our desires come directly out of our deeper motivation. And from our desires come actions that mirror our motivations. I know this is getting a little bit heady, philosophical, so let me give you two examples. Let's say that you read somewhere that a good person helps old people cross the street. And you're like, wow, that's a great idea. Out of that, you're going to go out and do it. Now, how often do you think you would do it? Maybe once, maybe twice, if it was convenient for you. Right? And then after two or three days, two or three times, you would just kind of forget all about it, and you'd go on living your own life. It's because your motivation was to be a good person according to this little trite statement that you read somewhere. The motivation was shallow, therefore your actions were shallow. But let's say that my three-year-old daughter told me to protect her. Now imagine what my actions would be for that. I would do absolutely anything I had to do in order to protect her. Because my motivation and my desire is to love her in the best way possible. So based on that deeper motivation, desire, my actions resemble that depth. Now I believe that Jesus is stating that the answer to the universal problem of discontentment is a deep desire or a driving motivation to live life the way that we were created to live it. Because out of this desire comes genuine action. So last question. How does one produce deep desire? You know, I spent a lot of time thinking about this question. And what the answer that came to my mind is that all desires stem from relationships. All desires stem from relationships. Our connection, it's another term for relationship, our connection to a person an activity, an idea, is what creates the desires within us. Whether that be for your job, your hobbies, your addictions. By spending time thinking about it and doing it, you create a desire to want to do it more. Right? Think about the things that you're really into. Rock climbing, mountain biking, building cars, knitting, whatever it is. Right? The more you think about it, the more you do it. The more you think about it, the more you do it. You create that your own desire within you based on the amount of time and activity, that relationship that you have with whatever that is. The deeper the relationship, the deeper the desire. So if you want a deep relationship, or excuse me, a deep desire to conform to God's standards for living, then you must have a deep relationship with God. Plain and simple in my eyes. It is out of this relationship that Jesus' promises come true, that we will be satisfied. And I believe this satisfaction comes in three different ways. Don't worry, we're getting close. These will go fast. There's application here. He guides us, he empowers us, and he protects us. When one deeply longs for the satisfaction that only Jesus can bring, then they are totally forgiven of the rebellion against God. And then they're given what the Bible refers to as the Spirit. The Spirit is God himself, part of the Trinity, that comes and inhabits those who believe in the power of Jesus. 
From this position, God has the ability to guide a person individually on the best way to live their life. Do you hear that? From this position, God has the ability to guide you on how to best live your life. Let me show you some verses that I get this from. John 16, 13. Jesus himself. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Look at that. What a promise. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. That's from Jesus and from the Father. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. One more. This is David. I love this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. God's desire always has been to intimately interact with each person so that they, together, the person and God, can custom build their life. So imagine that, God himself telling you the best way to view these things in your life. How else, how would you end up in any other position but content if God himself, the creator of everything, is instructing you on where to place value? Through the influence and the directing of the Spirit, a person is given insight and conviction on how to properly view things like money, possessions, relationships with others, hobbies, pleasure, leisure, right? On and on and on. From my experience, what we're taught is that these things pale in comparison to God himself. It's like they get smaller and smaller the more we listen. And so they have less and less influence on the contentment that we can have. The second thing he does, he empowers us. As we are given these understandings of how to view these things in our lives, God himself then gives us the grace to live them out. So we got some stuff piling up here. Even though God's guiding you, showing you the best way to do things, right? It's still so hard to take your eyes off your bank account, to stop looking at those pictures, to really stop caring what those people are thinking. But what the Spirit does is that He empowers people to walk away from addiction to give away illogical amounts of money which will then affect their view of their bank account, to have peace even though they are not living up to other people's expectations. The Spirit, through His grace, gives us the ability to handle our own issues which realigns our perception and puts us back to a level of satisfaction with what we're doing. This is a short one, but Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So clear. He helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for our words. So that means as we're struggling, we're not even praying, the Spirit that's within us is bringing our issues before God himself on our behalf. So that way God's grace can be poured upon us to empower us to handle the circumstance or the problem that we're in the midst of. Last one, he protects us. So even if a person is seeking God's guidance and living out of his power, circumstances will still come. Should have painted this black. That black bomb will still be dropped upon your life. 
times when you feel like everything is going wrong, whether it's financially, physically, mentally, relationally. But from the stories that I've heard and what I've experienced on my own, even though it is logical for one to be fully discontent, God protects us and supports us through these times. What I've found is that the closer you draw to God, the less effect these circumstances have upon you. Doesn't mean that they're going to take away all sadness, all discontentment, but look at this difference. Without bottoms dropping out, you can't hold it together. You don't know how you're going to continue to. That was rough. But God is good. I still have life today. A couple verses. Continue with David with Psalms 23, 4. Even though I walk through the darkest valley. Look at that. He just states it. I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then Paul Philippians 4, not that I'm referring to be in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty, and of being in need. Why? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. When we enter into a genuine relationship with our creator, we begin to see the promises of contentment becoming a reality. So as we finish this up, I want to leave you with a logical thought and a challenge. If the one who made you is the only one that can lead you into contentment, and the deeper our relationship is with God, the more contentment we receive, Shouldn't we pursue that relationship more? Think about how much time and thought that you put into your other desires. Work, hobbies, leisure, pleasure, relationships with others. What if you gave a similar amount of time and thought to God? Imagine what that would bring to your life if you made God your priority. You know what, let me, uh, let me close that with prayer, and then I'll uh, share a couple of thoughts. God, thank you for tonight, and thank you for loving us. Thank you for pursuing us, and Father, we just uh, we come and worship you tonight, not as a means of um, gaining your love, but Father, as a response to the love that you're already expressing. We love you. Amen. Well, guys, before we, uh, before we close tonight, last month, um, Evan asked me to share just a little bit about kind of how we do children's ministry at Rimrock and kind of the philosophy behind uh, children's ministry. And so I shared a little uh, story about the night that um, our first 
child was born, Kara, and the, the, the um, weight of responsibility that I felt to plant um, seeds of faith in her life and how overwhelming that was. So really over the next several months, I just want to kind of continue the story uh, for you guys, just giving you a look at the way that we um, planted faith in our kids. Your story will be different. The way you do it will be different, but, um, but I love telling the stories. And uh, hopefully in the process, what you see are two things. We were intentional and we were not perfect, right? We weren't even good at it sometimes, um, but we were intentional. I want to share with you this, uh, <clears throat> this verse, uh, this scripture tonight, Psalm chapter 78, starting with verse 1. It says, my people hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors told us. We will not hide them from our descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders that he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds but would keep his commands. And that scripture became a a great reminder for us of what our end result was. Our end goal was to plant seeds of faith in our kids so that not just that they would have a faith of their own, but that they would be equipped to even share their faith with their kids and their kids would know the Lord and would share it with the next. It is multi-generational faithfulness. That's the goal. That's the desire. That's the hope. That's the prayer. So initially in those very first years of parenting, right, it was our approach was super simple because we didn't know anything else. We were way overwhelmed. We didn't know what we were doing. And so we just tried to connect everyday life that we saw to faith. Oh, look, God made that flower, and isn't the sky beautiful? And we connected God to everything that we could. Anything that was good, anything that was beautiful, anything that was lovely, man, we gave God the credit for. And anything that was hard, we looked to God and asked for his strength. But as Kara began to grow and get older, he or she, uh, she began to ask tougher and tougher questions. And it became really clear that just um, taking walks with around the neighborhood and pointing out how great God is wasn't going to be enough. We had to do something else. And so we began using object lessons and activities inside our home um, to initiate, to start some of those faith conversations to help us to explore some harder topics with our four-year-old, right? Our four-year-old and five-year-old and six-year-old. And those of you who have four, five, and six-year-olds know that they ask these huge questions. How can they ask such tough questions when they're just little people, right? But they ask these great questions, and we wanted to try to get ahead of that. And so we began using these object lessons. Our goal was to do it one time a week, and sometimes we got it, (laughs) but not usually. We were very imperfect about it, but we were intentional. We found a great resource from a a good friend of ours named Kirk Weaver, uh, and it's called Family Time. Uh, 
In your bulletins tonight, I put, uh, because Rimrock has a, uh, we buy a subscription so that everybody at Rimrock can have those activities for free. In your bulletin, you'll find uh, in there the website and how to log in and how to enjoy that resource for free. Those activities are good for kids of all different ages, from as uh, young as two years old, preschool age, all the way through uh, teenagers. But we used those for many years at our house. A couple that I remember really, really well. We, uh, we did one. We almost always had neighbor kids over with us uh, when we would do an object lesson. But one, my, one of my favorite ones, we put a, uh, a big bowl of gumballs in the middle of the coffee table. Now, you guys probably don't get too jazzed about gumballs. But you say to a kid... That big bowl of gumballs, they could all be yours. And I mean, kids will start to, like, freak out, right? So we had every kid had their own bowl, and we put it. They had to make, they had to get away from the bowl where they couldn't reach both bowls at once. And then we said, when I say go, you can go to the bowl as many times as you want and get one gumball at a time and put it in your bowl. And they just went nuts. Back and forth, back and forth. The only rule, other than you can take one at a time, is when the timer goes off, if your hand isn't on your bowl, then you have to put all of those back. And I mean, they loved it. It was so much fun. And it was crazy. All these kids just running, grabbing uh, gumballs. And some of them had quite a little nest egg right, a little pile of gumballs, and then the timer went off, and they were caught in between, and they had to dump them all out. It took us about four rounds for one of the kids to finally get it. They made four or five trips, and then they stood there with their hand on the bowl and just waiting for the timer to go off. Nobody else noticed, just one kid at first, and the timer went off, and all the other kids had to put their gumballs back. And that one kid was like, yeah, I got five gumballs, right? All we did was used it as an opportunity to talk about being content with what you have. Instead of wanting just one more, just one more, just one more, can I get just one more, just a little bit more, but I'm going to be content with what I have. Man, what a fun way to do that. What a fun way to do that with kids. Well, we began using those object lessons, and, and uh, over the years, we, the, those lessons began to kind of pile up. And we have, a, we have just some great memories of doing those, and I can share those another time. But here's what I want to say to you guys. As great and as valuable and as good as children's ministry is, it by itself is not enough. Right now we're living at uh, Evan and Roz's old house in Keystone, and the street is called Echo Valley Road, and there's a reason for that, right? I can walk out on the back deck, and I can holler, and I can hear what I say three or four times. It is the coolest thing. But it reminded me that that's exactly what children's ministry is. Children's ministry is an echo of your voice, not the other way around. 
children's ministry echoes what you are speaking into your children's lives. We reinforce the faith messages that you're giving your kids. We're the sprinkle on top of the cupcake, right? We're, we're just a little extra. But what you guys are doing in your homes Monday through Saturday, or in our case, Sunday through Friday, right? That's really where faith gets developed in your kids. And so our desire, our number one priority in children's ministry is to come alongside moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and to equip you to be able to plant seeds of faith in the lives of your kids, to help that to grow because God's given you everything that you need in order to do it. We just want to encourage and cheerlead you in the process. All right. Now I'm going to pray again, but not just because I need to do that before we end, but I seriously, I want to pray for each one of you guys because God's given you that commission to pass faith to your children and you need the partnership of the Lord to get it done right. Let me pray just for that. Father, thank you for tonight and thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to be parents and grandparents. Father, those of us that you've blessed with that um, privilege, you've also connected a huge responsibility to it. And Father, we know we can't do it alone. But we're so grateful that you didn't design us to do it alone. Father, you've given us a church community to walk together with, to find encouragement and support from. But Father, your Holy Spirit lives in us. You are, you are raising us up in our faith and equipping us in the process to pass that faith to our kids. Father, would you continue that work first in moms and dads and then allowing that to spill over into the lives of our kids. Father, help children's ministry at Rimrock to be an outstanding echo of those voices. Help us to be faithful and excellent at what we do in supporting moms and dads and equipping them to fulfill their commission. We love you and we lift you up. Amen. All right, guys, tonight's date night. So um, uh, you're welcome to uh, exit. Don't feel the need to check on your kids. They're going to do great. Probably better if you don't check on them. Um, if you're not going on date night, don't leave without your children, <laughs> please. And uh, have a great week and we'll see you next time. Thank you. <laughs>